This morning, we'll be looking at Zechariah chapter 7. Zechariah is at the very back end of the Old Testament, the second last book. We're in about the middle of the prophet Zechariah right now. And we'll be looking this morning at the entirety of chapter 7. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Zechariah chapter 7. In the fourth year of King Darius... The word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regan Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the, of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets? When Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities round her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. And they made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it this morning. Let's pray. O Lord, our God, speak to us, O Lord, through your word. By your prophet and your spirit, tell us, O Lord, more and more of who you are, more and more of what you require of us. Lord, we ask that you would reach us And fill our hearts with a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask 
In Christ's precious name, amen. In current events, it is a question that is on the lips of many in the church today. The question is, what is the problem for the church today? Why are things going so badly in the church at large? Why does society seem to be crumbling? Why does our culture appear to be more and more opposed to God and the things of God? And how have we messed up and how can we fix it? This is a question that comes to us readily because we like to know that there's something that we can do. We want to know that somehow our circumstances can be overcome and defeated. We think that if we just do the right sets of things that God wants, that things will turn around and He will bless us and honor us. That is not just a question in 2016 America. It's a question in 518 B.C. Jerusalem. The people of God have always been plagued by this question because you see... Far too often, we think we know what God wants of us. We think we know what's expected, and if we just somehow deliver, God will reply. And so this morning, what I would like us to see is what true religion is, what it means to follow the Lord our God. The first thing that we need to do is to apprise ourselves of what we really think God wants in religion what is so often in the background of our minds, unsaid assumptions. And then secondly, the Lord brings to us warnings against shallow religion. And then finally, He shows us a picture of what true religion looks like. What God, what we think God wants in religion, warnings against shallow religion, and what true religion looks like. Well, let's take a look then at Zechariah chapter 7. This is a new section in this book. Chapters 1 through 6 contain a series of night visions that we have been looking at in the past few months. And these night visions have been designed to encourage the people of God. You know what the theme of them has been. The kingdom is coming. Don't focus on the past. Don't focus on your suffering in the present. Your best days are ahead of you. This is an encouragement that God is bringing to His people. But now here we have a new section. I know it's hard to realize this from just looking at your Bible, but you have to understand that two years have gone by between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. We can miss this if we read it too quickly, but, but God is very specific, very precise. He actually tells us the exact day that this word came to Zechariah. If you're wondering, it's December 7th, 518 B.C. Just about two years from when the visions came one night to Zechariah. This chapter and the chapter after it, chapter 8, are a kind of a pause in the book 
of Zechariah. The first half are the night visions of encouragement. The second half of the book of Zechariah, from chapters 9 through 14, are the Lord encouraging His people, not just that the kingdom is coming, but encouraging them about who their coming king is. But now there's a pause. There's a particular theological issue that's at stake here. And this theological issue gives God an opportunity to speak to our hearts. There's a delegation that arrives from Bethel. And as this delegation arrives, we have a window into what they, and therefore what we think we want, what we think God wants in religion. And the very first thing that grips us is we think that God wants us to do things right. That if we just have the right kind of services, with the right kind of programs, with the right kind of witnessing, and if we have the right amount of emphasis on mission, and if we do all of the things the way we're supposed to, then God will see, and He will be pleased, and He will shower down blessings and comforts upon us. You see, it may be unstated, but far too often, that is the mechanism that we operate under. And when things aren't going well, our thoughts go to, how can we fix them? What are we doing wrong that we can do right so God will bless us once again? And this delegation from Bethel provides a wonderful, vivid example of this. Some of you may remember that the town of Bethel was a town in Israel that was synonymous with idolatry. It was the seat where one of the two golden calves was set up. It was not a pagan city, but it was a city where corrupted worship was brought in. Where they tried to get away without worshiping at the temple. They tried to set up their own requirements and what God would want. Now, the problem is is that the exile changed all that. Bethel, along with so many other towns and cities, had been swept up into exile. And those who were from Bethel understood this perhaps even better than other Israelites. They knew that the reason that they had been sent into exile is because they had not worshipped God as they were supposed to. That they had created idols. That they brought up false worship. And so when they returned from exile in to the promised land, you could be sure that that would be on their mind. A large group of Israelites returned to Bethel. Now, I know this doesn't sound like much, but comparatively, it's double many other cities. 223 Israelites returned to Bethel. And they realized why the exile had come. And you could imagine they were very sure that it was not going to happen again. And they were going to take every effort they could to make sure it didn't happen again. And so what they do is they send a delegation to talk to the experts. To talk to the priests and to the prophets. Both Zechariah and Haggai. And they come to them and they say, we have this question for you. Should we keep this fast we've been keeping? Look at verse 3. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? 
Now it's interesting that in the Old Testament, there is really only one day that is set aside for fasting. It is the Day of Atonement. But when the exile came to the people of God, an emphasis, as you can imagine, was placed on all of their lives on the catastrophe that came to them. It's it's hard to understand how much this gripped the people of God. It would be as if you woke up this morning and the first thing you thought about was 9-11. And as you sat down to lunch, you wondered, how could we have prevented 9-11? What could we have done differently? How was 9-11 a judgment from God? How could we have acted differently? How could we have spoken differently? And when you went to bed, you went and laid your head on the pillow and thought again about 9-11. It was something that consumed you day after day after day, a calamity that you could never get past. You see, in exile, the people of God set up not one, not two, but four separate fasts. In the fourth month, They fasted on the day that the Babylonians breached the walls of Jerusalem. In the seventh month, they fasted on the day in which Gedaliah, the governor of Israel, was murdered and they were cast into exile in Egypt. In the tenth month, they fasted on the day that the siege works were set up outside the city of Jerusalem. And then again, in the fifth month, they fasted on the day the city and the temple were burnt. You see, they were obsessed with all of these bad things that had happened. And now they come to Jerusalem and they say, Now look, two years have gone by. And we can see that the temple is progressing. You have to understand that for the people of God, things are getting better. The temple is growing one stone upon another. The encouragement that came from Zechariah is bearing fruit. The people of God are working together and they are rebuilding the temple and they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it's like if you've ever undertaken a big project and you reach that point where you realize, I'm going to actually get this done. This is going to work. I know what I'm doing. And you start to work even faster because... You can see the end in sight. That's what's happening to the Israelites. There is a joy about what is happening. Their circumstances are getting better and better. And so the delegation from Bethel comes and they say, Listen, we know we have messed up in the past. We understand the whole golden calf thing. We understand that we're brought back and we have been fasting on the fifth month for 70 years Do we really need to keep doing this now? Tell us. Because we're not sure. And we're coming to the experts for permission. You see, the reality is, is that all of their concerns revolve around themselves. Why are they fasting? Well, the first and foremost answer is to remember the past. But what past events Are they remembering? They're only remembering past calamities that have come upon them. You see, they're fasting not just to remember the the past, but more importantly, they are fasting to avoid a repeat. They want to do things right this time. They want to avoid punishment. 
They want to be very careful about how they're going about things because they don't want to experience this kind of punishment again. And if we're not careful, we can have that same kind of attitude in our hearts. The things that we do are done because we think this is what God requires of us in order to bless us. We need to keep up our side of the bargain. That if we don't, then things will be bad. And we don't like when things are bad, do we? How many of you like thinking about a bad economy? How many of you enjoy dwelling on persecution? How many of you would like to see jobs lost, churches closed, mission places burnt down? We don't like that. We want to avoid it at all costs. And the problem comes when we think that it is up to us to do certain things that God requires to avoid disaster. There's a second thing that this delegation from Bethel has in their minds, and I think it's something that's familiar to anyone in a family with children. They are eager to show God that they have learned their lesson. Now, if you've ever had children who've ever been disciplined or been in trouble, you know exactly what this looks like. There comes a point in time where they want to come up to mom and dad and explain that they've learned their lesson. They understand that they've been wrong. They'll never, ever, ever do it again. And there really is no reason to punish them anymore because they've learned everything that they need to learn. Right? And those of you that are parents know you did the exact same thing to your parents. And that's what the group from Bethel is doing. They want to show God, we get it. The exile really rubbed our face in it. We understand exactly. We have learned our lesson. Now, can't we just get back to normal? Can't we just go back to things being easy? And you see, that's what learning your lesson is all about. It's not about change. It's not even about actually being sorry. It's about, I want to get back to normal quickly. Can't you do that for me now? You see, they want to show God that they understood what he was doing. And they understood that he had spoken to them in the past by the prophets. And even though they hadn't listened back then, oh, they were ready to listen now. You see, what the people from Bethel are implying is, is that the purpose of God's punishment was to get their attention. And now God has it. And so... Can't we just put the past behind us now? After all, 70 years we've been fasting. It's not like we only did it for a couple of years. Let's go back to normal. This is something that that we see all the time in our own lives as we desire to get ourselves back to normal, to think that all God is trying to do is to elicit an external response from us. But there's an obvious problem with this. It doesn't get to the heart of the matter. And that's why God's answer, surprisingly, is a stinging rebuke. See, we might not expect that. We might think, well, these people from Bethel, they've really got it together. They're going to the right place, they're talking to the right people, and they want to be sure they're doing the right things. But God comes at them with a blistering attack. Look at verse 5. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month, 
And in the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? You see, it's not about fasting. It's not about feasting. All of these things were merely religious exercises. They were designed to purchase results from God. And it was not what God really wanted, which is a relationship with them, which is their hearts affected, which is a hatred for sin. You see, God begins to correct them and give them a warning about shallow religion because He will not leave them in that place. Shallow religion, first and foremost, is self-centered. Now, God must get their attention because all of their activities are all about themselves. They are fasting to meet their own emotional needs. The response that they are giving here to the Lord shows that they're focused only on the consequences of their past sin. Sure, they mourned the disaster, but I rattled off four feasts, fast days to you. Did you notice that each one of the fast days correlates with when something bad happened to them? There's no fasting for the sin that brought this about. There's no day of self-introspection and wondering how they could have not followed the Lord. They're only fasting about bad things happening to them that they don't want to have happen again. But why did the calamity strike them? Now, the calamity did not come out of nowhere. They had been given plenty of warning by the Lord. They had been entreated over and over again by the prophets. Over and over again, the Lord had warned them that they had strayed, that they were sinning, that they were worshiping idols. You see, these calamities came as a result of their sin. And so what God does is He sees through their smokescreen. There was no fasting for the sins that they had committed. They didn't fast because they had offended God. And the result is that this meant nothing unless it was done sincerely for God. You see, we are at a crossroads here in the modern American church where we could take this same path. We don't like the laws that are going on in our country. We don't like the way the church is treated by our leaders. We don't like the way jail sentences are, are brought down. Or preachers' mouths are stopped. Or people are prevented from sharing their faith. And we want God to fix it. And so we think somehow, if we are kind enough to God... And if we do the right things, that God will come along and fix these bad things so we don't have them happen to us anymore. But the reality is that's all self-centered. It's not about God. It's not about His kingdom. It's not about mission. It's not about the gospel. It's about me and my comfort. It's about getting me back to normal. The reality is that everything in our Christian lives can be odious to God if it is not done in service to Him. 
All the church services we attend, all the money we give, all the Bible verses we read, all the prayers we pour out, if they are focused upon ourselves and our own comfort and our own need for meaning, they mean nothing. But you see, there's an encouragement we can take from this as well. Because you see, the opposite is true. That even the smallest of things that we do for the kingdom, if they are done for love of God and sincerely for God, they are magnificent in His sight. And so, ladies, as you work hard to raise children, to reheat food in the microwave, to pick out outfits that match, to change diapers, to stop bickering, If you do this with a sincere love for God, it is glorious in His sight. It is not small. It is not meaningless. As you work honestly and forthrightly at work, not expecting reward or return, not expecting that God then owes you prosperity, as you do that, it is glorious in God's sight. As you treat others around you that the world refuses to treat with dignity, as you treat them with dignity and honor, this is glorious in the sight of the Lord. You see, shallow religion is self-centered. Me, me, me. True religion focuses upon God and His glories and His character. You see, there's a key question that comes not only to the delegation from Bethel, but to you and to me. Are we pleased if things are going smoothly, even though we see our sin? Are you willing to have your lives disrupted, your economies damaged, Your savings accounts depleted. Your health challenged that God might root out sin from your life. You see, that's the key question here. That's the difference between true and false religion. True religion says, I want God. No matter what else happens to me, I cannot live without Jesus. False religion says, I'll take a little bit of Jesus on the side. He makes everything so much more tasty. You see, to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is to trust Him with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Another thing about shallow religion is that it is hard-hearted. And this is true because a continual focus upon ourselves makes us numb to God and His Word. This is what allows us to live lives of immorality in the midst of religious expression. Have you ever wondered when you see these polls that say that rates of divorce or of adultery or of income tax cheating or of lying are basically similar amongst those who are in church every week as society at large. Do you ever wonder to yourself, how can that possibly be? 
And the answer is found here in Zechariah 7. You see, the answer is, is that if we become numb to God and to His glory and His worth, as long as things are going okay with us, we see no reason to change the morality of our actions. We see no reason to live lives that are honoring to Jesus. It's only when we feel the pinch that we wonder how much can we change and how little can we change in order to get the results. Right? We want to change as little as possible to get the maximum possible benefit. I remember this when I was younger and we took, myself and some friends, we took the bar exam to be admitted to the the bar in Ohio. And the smartest guy was the one who got the lowest passing score. Because that meant you worked least and got the same benefit. That's sometimes how we view our Christian life. We want the benefit so we're willing to work. But where's the cutoff point? Do we have to fast another year or two? Another 70? Five or six? Tell us, Lord, the cutoff point. And you see, when we live this way, we do not hear the Lord in His Word. And this describes most of the modern Western church. We talk a big game, but we deny the reality of God's Word. We rush to sin like the rest of the world, and we excuse our actions. The church at large does not hear God in His Word. This is exactly what happened to Israel. They had been given many warnings. God says it even here. He says, this is nothing new. I spoke to you this way by the former prophets. Now, this is easy to see. All you need to do is to take your thumb and flip to Isaiah 58. A prophet before the exile, warning the Israelites that God's judgment was coming. And Isaiah says to the people of God, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to me. Why have we fasted and you seen it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. You oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight, to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. You see, this is something God has been telling them for generations. But they've become hard-hearted. Zechariah tells us that their hearts have become like a diamond. Now, that doesn't mean their hearts are valuable. The actual Hebrew word isn't diamond. The actual Hebrew word is really, really hard stuff. Harder than flint. Now, translators don't like to say things like that, so they say, what's the hardest thing that anyone ever knows of? Well, it's a diamond. That's the point. Their hearts have become so hard that nothing else can penetrate it. They don't want to hear God's word. They think they're doing well spiritually, and all the while, God is not pleased. And the reason for this is because they have set up their own standard rather than God's standard. 
Whereas real spirituality looks different. It looks like this. Hearing and believing God's word. Focusing on the inner reality of our lives, not just the external consequences around us. Desiring that our religion glorify God because He is worthy, despite whatever the circumstances will bring. This is what true religion looks like. First and foremost, it looks like following the Lord. God tells us what He really wants in verses 9 and 10. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. You see, following a false religion is dangerous. And we should be concerned about this. So, what does it mean then not to focus upon ourselves? First, it means we must stop viewing everything in the world in respect to terms of our circumstances. God tells us that true religion is godliness. That is, being more and more like God. Being more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. That is true religion. You see, Jesus is our example. The Christian life is more than just a series of actions. It is a desire to be shaped into the image of Christ. And so Jesus provides us the example of the Christian life. Not that we are saved merely by following his example, but after we have placed our trust and faith in him, after we have said we are unable, Jesus, you must do the work. Then Jesus says, follow me. He is the way that we see who God is, isn't he? If we want to know what it means to love someone, we look at Jesus. This is how we learn, isn't it? The youngest children among us learn how to do things by watching others, their parents, their older siblings, neighbors. You see, we learn what God is like and what God really wants. By watching Jesus and wanting to be more and more like he is. The focus of the people at Bethel is wrong. They're concerned about what they need to do. Instead, God tells them to do as he does. Now, what does this mean here? Simply by categories, it means things like respecting the truth and believing God and his word. It means loving people in a committed and practical way. It means helping those who are helpless and who cannot reward you for the help you have given them. It means guarding your heart. True religion is what James says. It is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. That's what it means to follow the Lord. It means to see Jesus and to obey his word. Not for the life of ease. Not for rewards in heaven. Not for the praise of men. But because Jesus is worthy to be followed. There is none like Jesus. The second and final way that we see true religion is in hearing the Lord. 
If false religion is to be hard-hearted and deaf to the Word of God, then true religion is to hear the Lord in His Word. It requires us to hear the Lord's command and call and to act upon it. This was where it went astray for Israel. Look at verse 11. They refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. Now let me see if I can paint a small picture of you for this. It's like trying to get obedience out of a three-year-old in the midst of a meltdown. What do they do? First, they act like they can't hear you at all. And if they just ignore you, then maybe the commands will stop. Maybe I won't have to do what I don't want to do. And then what happens? They begin to flop around on the floor, twist in your arms, try to do everything they can physically not to be able to pay attention, not to have to obey. They want you to know very clearly they have no intention of listening or obeying. And then it can get very sophisticated. Their fingers go in their ears. I can't hear you. I'm not listening. You can't make me. Now, it's not fun when the toddler's having the meltdown. It's a little humorous when the preacher tells a story. But in the Christian life, this is deadly serious. Because, you see, we are not hearing God in His Word. And our hearts become hard. Instead, we need to listen to the Lord. We need to make every effort to hear Him. You can't ignore God, but you can't make Him go away. You can be like the pro athlete that walks through all of the area with all of the hustle and the bustle with the noise-canceling headphones on, pretending none of that exists. Guess what? It still does. Your ignoring of God does not change who God is. It does not change what God requires of us. It does not change the glory of God. Of Jesus Christ. And God continues to pursue his people. And this gives us great hope. He says, I sent prophets to you. God keeps revealing himself over and over again. And you must hear him. Because Zechariah closes with a warning. That there will come a day. When God will reject those who do not hear. You may be sitting here tonight and say, I don't really need all this Jesus stuff right now. I'm getting along pretty well. I don't need to change my whole life and to believe in Jesus. And what Zechariah says is, God keeps speaking. But when you do not hear, there will come a day when you will cry out and God will say, I will not hear. He will not be patient forever. His wrath will not be long-suffering forever. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, to follow after Him, to go more and more after His image, to know the glories of serving the risen Savior. True religion is this. 
Hearing the Lord's call. Following Him. Focusing on our sin. And our need for redemption. More than the consequences that come as a result of our sin. Will you hear the Lord today? Will you follow the Lord Jesus Christ? This is the call of the Lord our God through the prophet Zechariah. Let's pray. O Lord, we ask this morning that you would remind us that you are indeed at work, that you call us to yourself over and over again, that through your prophets you spread out mercy. Lord, help us to not only hear but to be changed. Work in us, Lord, a work beyond anything we are capable ourselves. That we might follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That we might serve Him and glorify Him in all that we say and do. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.